Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors educational podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. On this episode, we will discuss data that might be useful for investors to consider when assessing claims of stakeholder-oriented practices by public companies and ESG funds. Our special guest today is Shiva Rasgopal, the Kester and Burns Professor of Accounting and Auditing at Columbia Business School. Professor Rajapal is the co-author of a recent research paper entitled, Do the Socially Responsible Walk the Talk? The paper analyzes corporate data in two settings. First, the paper examines data related to those companies that were signatories to the August 2019 Business Roundtable Statement that a corporation's purpose is to benefit all stakeholders. Second, the paper examines data relating to those companies whose shares are held in two of the largest ESG funds. The paper concludes that investors ought to be vigilant when assessing claims of stakeholder-oriented practices by firms and ESG funds. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us about your research. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Professor, as indicated, in August of 2019, the Business Roundtable announced the release of a new statement on purpose of a corporation signed by 181 CEOs who committed to lead their companies for the benefit of all stakeholders. In your research, you compared data from those BRT signatory companies to the data from their industry peers. What did you find from that data comparison that you believe would be of interest to investors? Thank you, Jeff. This is uh, a naughty, incredibly hard question to answer usually, right? So what does a good ESG company mean? So if you want to have a conversation about traditional things like, say, valuation, about overvalued or undervalued companies, I can at least look at some fundamental financial metrics. I can look at financial statements. We can have a conversation about terminal value or discount rates and so on. But in this world, what does a good ESG company mean is a very difficult problem to go after. So most people seem to rely on vendor-provided ESG scores. If you look hard at those scores, sometimes I wonder about you know, how those scores are actually compiled. What's the underlying data like? Is it verifiable? And there's lots of work out there, as you know, that you know, if you line up the scores for several vendors, there's hardly any correlation among these scores, which should worry investors. So we decided to step away from the world of uh, ESG vendor-provided scores, and instead we focus on primary data. And we spent a lot of time looking for such primary data, and that's hard to come by. But we hit upon this uh, fascinating website called Good Jobs First, where you know Phil Matera and his team have compiled federal violation records across hundreds of agencies. So this is a website where if you just go and say type in amazon.com, it's going to pull up every citation received by Amazon, fines, penalties, and citations across hundreds of federal agencies, such as the EPA, the OSHA, the Department of Labor, you know, the Mine Safety Administration, the FTC, the SEC, you name it. So that's our primary data source. So we, we, we sort the violation data for, uh, under E, which is environmental, and S, which 
relates to labor. Now, as you know, defining S is hard. What is S? Does S mean labor? Does S mean corporate citizenship? And so on. So we look at both the labor and the corporate citizenship component. To go after the corporate citizenship component, again, Good Jobs First has data on lobbying investments made by companies and what you might argue are the returns, meaning the, uh, the, the federal aid, federal contracts that they get, state assistance to build a plant and so on. And then to look at the G, on which there's been a bit more work, as you know, we look at abnormal CEO compensation, the relation between the board and the company, things like dual class shares, areas where uh, ISS and management might uh, disagree in terms of proxy proposals. And based on that analysis, it turns out that the BRT firms are sadly systematically worse than a closely matched control sample, meaning industry peers, similar sized companies, similar performing companies. And of course, now the rub lies in the interpretation of the data. So a benign interpretation of the data is that, you know, these people are signing on to the statement because they want to improve their record. A somewhat more skeptical interpretation of the data would be perhaps a lot of this is just PR greenwashing. Professor, your research also examined corporate data related to the investments held by the largest ESG ETF and the largest ESG mutual fund. What did you find out about the corporate governance of those companies, uh, including the use of dual class stock structures? So this is interesting. The, the, the exact same inferences, by and large, carried over to the ESG fund world. And, but if you probe the fund world a little closely, I guess they're very worried about tracking error vis-a-vis the S&P 500. So maybe for that or for some other reason, most of these funds are heavy on technology, meaning they're long on technology, and they avoid arguably short on things like power, utilities, energy, And when you read claims about ESG funds making alpha, please keep that in mind. It's mostly technology. And even within technology, if you delete the so-called fangs, I'm not sure there is alpha. So having said that, you know, because they've loaded so much on technology, it almost comes with the territory, right? So you get lots of these dual class stocks uh, held by these people and you wonder about the G, you know? So there's uh, dual class shares, as you know, are pretty controversial. I don't necessarily believe that all dual-class shares are bad because entrepreneurs, I think, legitimately perhaps need some protection from what they claim is you know, quarterly interference or quarterly capitalism. But the hard part is getting rid of founders when they've outlived their utility. And then the outside investors have a very hard time dealing with that issue. We have a, a couple of examples in play right now, perhaps, I don't know, maybe Facebook, uh, and then everybody else is powerless. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange contract where the idea is give me, the, give me capital, but you don't have any say in how the company is run. So, Professor, I, I know that you have reviewed the empirical evidence regarding how particular ESG factors drive company long-term performance. So based on the empirical evidence you have seen, what E and S factors can be associated with the creation of long-term shareholder value? Fascinating question. The short answer I would say is slim pickings, not a whole lot. Uh, Let me elaborate. So it's fairly easy to get scope one, scope two, scope three emissions data in the world of E. And 
there are some papers out there claiming correlations between you know future abnormal returns and emissions but it turns out that at least my conjecture is they're just picking up the effect of size and industry clustering so if you take these emissions data and you divide them by some measure of size revenue say revenue or assets or number of employees then you predictably find very high quote unquote scope intensity ratios meaning more emissions per unit of revenue in predictable industries such as power utilities and so on you find smaller ratios for say technology and so on so it goes back to our earlier argument that you know you're able to show returns partly because of a size and b certain industries haven't done well so it's not obvious that there's a connection between you know, these emissions and you know quote unquote performance at least measured as stock returns and even operating performance the future roa roe and so on the s i think has potential especially when we talk about s in terms of labor one of the distressing things to me as a fundamental analyst is that only 15% of american companies actually tell us what their labor costs are which to me is astonishing you know before we talk about human capital measures and all the secs uh, you know new initiatives which are welcome of course can somebody just tell me what the labor costs are that would help me a lot because that's a proxy for fixed costs if i don't know about fixed costs i don't know about operating leverage of a company this is like finance 101 so you if somebody wants to do something about s please just at least make sure that we all get information about labor costs that would be i think a, a big step forward so in my class we spend like 6 hours trying to guesstimate what a company's labor costs are we use glassdoor.com indeed.com all these interesting new websites linkedin is a big resource so s related to labor has a lot of potential i think in terms of understanding about future performance you know especially subtle things like culture which are important but very hard to quantify but right now there's virtually nothing in terms of s related to labor so i would just start there even if we don't accomplish a whole lot with this esg movement getting information about workforces would would really help me as a fundamental analyst That concludes this podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Professor Shiva Rajgopal, the Kester and Burns Professor of Accounting and Auditing at Columbia Business School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff J E F F at C I I dot O R G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.